Hi, everyone. It's Rebecca, and you're listening to Superwomen. Today's interview is with Blythe Harris, the co-founder and creative director of Stella & Dot. Stella & Dot is a direct-to-consumer brand in the homes of almost 30,000 personal stylists. Blythe and her co-founder, Jessica, have made it possible for women everywhere to flip the switch and instantly become entrepreneurs themselves. I talked to her about motherhood, entrepreneurship, and what it was like to start a company from scratch. Take a listen. So for those who don't know what Stella and Dot is, will you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Definitely. So we are a fashion lifestyle brand. We started in jewelry, but now we're actually in bags and apparel. And what's unique about us is um, we are a social selling company, which means we've got over 30,000 micro-influencers, a network of amazing women selling our products both uh, digitally and in person through pop-ups. So I think what's unique about our brand is, well, first of all, the mission is unique, which um, we really started with the mission to empower women to sort of lead a life of self-determination and to have some flexibility and control over their schedule and to provide entrepreneurial opportunities for women. So we sell our products through a network of micro-influencers, about 30,000 women in six countries, and they sell uh, both digitally and in person through pop-ups. So what inspired you aside from the mission to start the company? Because I think when you hear, oh my gosh, there's 30,000 people every day selling your product, that's huge. Did you know that that's what it was going to become or did you have this vision for how you wanted to start it? I had no idea it was going to become this. Um, I met my business partner, Jessica, at a time when I looked around me and all of my friends were starting to have kids and they were faced with what seemed like a very binary decision, which was work all the time and not see their kids or, um, you know, quit their careers. And a lot of them felt like, you know, they had given something up and, and something, something was missing. Some of them were ecstatic, but then, you know, it's just not a fit for everybody. So, I started talking to Jessica, and she had really studied the direct selling industry, which is one of the biggest, it's a huge, huge industry, and some of the well-known brand companies that are in this industry are like Mary Kay and Tupperware, and we kind of realized that it just hadn't evolved. There weren't modern products in the channel. They weren't using technology. So the vision was to create a modern, flexible entrepreneurial opportunity for women um, using this concept of women selling through their social networks. And then it really, there was, it really intersected with the rise of social media in, in an amazing way to create an explosive opportunity. And so did you always have a passion for jewelry? Was that something that started at a young age? I did always have a passion for jewelry. I was always, you know, beading jewelry and just selling it in high school. I had a whole stint where I was selling it at dead shows in the parking lot. I'd love to hear some (laughs) stories about that. (laughs) (laughs) Then I went to Parsons in Paris. I actually learned how to make jewelry in Mexico. Um, I learned metalsmithing, and I just developed this love of adornment. And I also love to travel. And everywhere I traveled, women were just so much more adorned than they than you know than they were at home. And you know, I, I especially love India, where you know every woman at every caste level just has 
you know, beautiful bangles and, and just this incredible sense of embellishment and color and joy um, in how they accessorize. And I always wanted to bring bring that to people. So prior to starting Stellenda, you worked with some of the biggest luxury fashion houses designing jewelry. I would love for you to speak a little bit about what that was like and how that might be different from what you do, you know, with your own company. Yeah. So it was actually a great education. I worked for LVMH in their watches and jewelry department. And I'd say that was an incredible experience because we were working with really high-end materials. I remember taking some very rare, like, blue diamonds and yellow diamonds to Paris on a photo shoot, and I had a bodyguard with, like, a, you know, a briefcase handcuffed to his arm, and then we had, like, all these Israeli guards outside the photo shoot, and so it was it was an incredible experience working with the finest materials and the finest jewelers and craftspeople and, you know, and, and taking months to work on just one piece. Um, and then also the exposure to Mr. Arnault. I was part of a very small team, um, and I actually got to have meetings directly with Mr. Arnault and really learn about um, how to have a super high bar um, and, and very high attention to detail, and also how a luxury brand and a luxury is, is just, it's not just about the product, it's about the entire experience. Um, of the product. So I'd say that was an incredible education. And then after I left LVMH, I actually went to work in India, in Orissa, which is the tribal region of India. Um, I worked in the middle of nowhere with a tribe, um, helping them adapt their designs to the Western market to tr- just try and open up distribution um, in, in new places for them. So, so I sort of had both ends of that experience were incredibly informative and just in, enriching in, in terms of where I ended up. So many people who work for their companies might dream of becoming an entrepreneur and then never make that jump. What do you think are some of the necessary ingredients to, if you want to be that entrepreneur, you want to start your own company uh, after having been on the corporate side? Oh, I think that that's a great question because a lot of I would say most entrepreneurs are not born, you know, entrepreneurs, and they don't do something directly out of college. They, a lot of them work for a big company first. And I think the first thing you need is just to identify a need and, a, and have a vision because I think when you have a vision for something, like for me, it was looking around at the jewelry industry and seeing there's Claire's on the low end, there's Tiffany's on the high end, but there were no nationally recognized um, or internationally recognized mid-tier jewelry brands. So I thought that that was a huge opportunity and need. So I'd say, one, just the vision and passion to identify a white space, and then the just natural inclination for risk-taking and failure and the confidence to know that it's, it's okay to um, take a risk and fail and that that's actually a necessary part of the process and you're going to be stronger after failing. So I'd, I'd say just the, that combination of things is really key. Yeah, I would say that failing, <laughs> like there's failures every day, you know, for an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I think it's that yeah. ability to like dust ourselves off and keep going. And there's failures when you work for other people too, but it's just a little bit totally. more um, cushioned sometimes. Totally. We always say like fail fast. Like you just need to fail fast and move on. And, and that's how you learn. And you can't 
create something new without taking risks and experimenting. And if you're experimenting, you're going to fail. So it's just part of the process and being able to learn from it and move on quickly is, is key. So one thing I love in empowering, you know, 30,000, I'm going to assume mostly women to sell the Stella and Dot product is giving them flexibility within their life, right? Uh, whether it was selling part-time or selling full-time. And how, I'm curious to know how you've sort of potentially altered, you know, the staff that work full-time at Stella and Dot into being more understanding or recreating what work looks like or working hours or, Mm -hmm. you know, how you sort of change the internal structure of work based on the services that you have with these stylists, if that makes sense. That's a great question. Um, I mean, our average stylist, this is a side hustle where she works five to 10 hours a week on the business. So obviously with full-time employees, they don't have that much flexibility, but we've built some of the same um, underlying principles in into our in, internal work life. Um, with my team, I really believe in, in accountability and empowerment, and then with that, to me, comes flexibility. So if, if, if you know what work you need to get done and you want to go home and pick up your kids from school one day or, or go ha- be home for dinner at five every day with your family and then get back online later to work on deliverables, that's fine. Like that is your, that's up to you. Um, I, I don't believe in FaceTime. And, and I actually think that that, that women need more flexible working environments like that. The other thing that I've really learned through this channel, which is related is the power of direct conversations, because I think that that so often as women we're kind of taught to hold back or not be as confrontational or, or skirt some issues. So fostering a culture of really direct communication and on the fly feedback, I also think creates an environment um, where, you know, women really feel like you're our, our employees feel like we're investing in them and we're investing in their growth. And they're also getting like no bullshit. Like a working mom does not have time for bullshit or, you know, somebody skirting around an issue. So being really direct, getting to the point. And then I would say that the third thing is being really disciplined about meetings. So we're really conscious of, you know, if, if you call a meeting, you go in with like a really clear agenda. And the goal is to get out as, as soon as possible because everybody does have their lives to get back to and their families. And um, so I think with all those things, we've created an environment that's really conducive to um, flexibility. I love that. I love what you said about in-person meetings, because I feel like just as there are internet trolls that hide behind, you know, screens, sometimes I feel like with running a business, you get into this just email and then the, and and it's like, they're literally sitting 20 yards from you and you're just emailing and then there's misunderstandings and it escalates. And so I think it is really key to just be like, let's talk in person. Totally. And, and then we, we sort of teach that those same practices, everything from time management to um, calendarization to setting agendas for meetings to how to give direct feedback. We do all that training with all of our stylists out in the field. Wow. That's great. To help them run their businesses efficiently. Because if you only have five to 10 hours to work, you, you really need to be, they need to be running their team meetings really efficiently and, um, and their businesses really effectively. So one of the things that I would love to have you talk about is you're part of running a company, you're a founder, you're also a creative. Where do you go to get inspired? Oh my gosh, that that is a great 
question. Um, so I actually give a TED Talk on how to stay creative in a corporate environment because it's something I've thought really, really deeply about. But um, I'd say the biggest thing I do is I try to structure my executive time. I try to cluster it together so I'm in like all-day executive meetings on Tuesday. And then that carves out like all-day Friday to basically put myself in front of different visual stimuli and, and just get myself out of my comfort zone. Because, you know, I think with creativity, it's all about your brain sort of taking in all this amazing input from the world and then connecting it in new and different ways. So one of the ways I trigger my creativity is to go to a place that I don't normally go to, whether even if something as silly as like a new coffee shop or take a different route to work or if, if I'm in New York, you know, walk to work a different way and, and just see different things or walk in a store I've never walked in. I also like to pull things out of other industries. So even though, you know, I may not be into gardening, but just like looking at a gardening magazine or like going to look at a botanical garden or something that's totally outside of my field, but is, is visually enriching. I, I love, I love to do because it just sparks new things. Totally. When I get really blocked, my solution lately is to go for a walk and not have my phone with me. Um, what do you do when you get blocked creatively? So one thing I do is five-minute meditations um, because I can never have the discipline to actually sit down for 20 minutes so you can fully meditate. But just sitting down in silence, like you said, with, with no phone, no distraction, like closing my laptop and just sitting for five minutes. And sometimes that unblocks me. And then if that doesn't work, I, I go for a walk or start working on something else and then come, come back to it later. I, come, I, I find that when I'm in the most relaxed state, like if I'm getting a massage or on the weekends or I'm about to drift off to sleep, that's when sort of creative unlocks come to me. And I do think there's something about your brain just settling down and activating your imagination network and sort of getting out of your head and your executive functioning network that is activated with emails and things like meetings and all that corporate stuff. So we both have co-founders. Yep. <laughs> More on that. I would love to, to go deeper with you some, sometime about working with your brother as a co-founder, because I'm sure that is a whole different layer. It's but a, yes. Yes. There's co-founder and then there's brother. Yes. <laughs> or I should say sibling for those of totally. people that work with their totally. siblings. But I'm curious to know the different roles that you and Jessica occupy and do you ever overlap or not? Yeah. Um, so Jessica is our CEO and she is, you know, she's got bottom line responsibility, obviously, to our board and for our our numbers and the budget. And she she really deals with everything from legal to finance to she does a lot out in our field with our stylists in terms of training and inspiration. Um, she's also a natural marketer, so she's very involved with marketing. And then I run the, the creative and product. So I'm in charge of the design teams. I have a heavy hand in merchandising as well as the creative side of marketing, like styling and um, basically how the 
the season comes to life in our collateral. And we definitely overlap. So where we intersect is basically where we land the product line and, and then decide what investment we're making in the products. And we both have very strong opinions. And I'd say the great thing is we love a vigorous debate. And, um, you know, having a business partner, it's almost like having another marriage. Like we've been together for almost 11 years. We've worked through conflict and we've, um, you know, weathered incredible highs and incredible lows. And I'd say what has made us a successful team is we, we, she actually really modeled this for me, which is being really direct. Um, she's a very direct communicator. She doesn't beat her on the bush and actually working with her has helped me become more direct. I'd say that's one of the biggest gifts of working with her. And so we do have conflict, but we move through it because we just have vigorous debate and we respect each other's opinion and level of passion. And then, and then we move on. And so in the past, or when you do have a conflict, uh, being direct, obviously, is something that you've spoken about. How do you sort of begin to have that dialogue? Is it uncomfortable ever? And and what do you sort of, what do you tap into within yourself to go, okay, how are we going to solve this? Yeah. So I'd say conflict in general has always been really uncomfortable for me. It's, it's just something I always wished I could change about myself, but I've just always been naturally conflict averse. So even the first five years, I would just, I mean, I had to like work myself up for days to, to bring something up with her. Like it really um, was so uncomfortable. And then somebody gave me a great piece of advice, which, which I've used in the last five years, which is like, don't think about it. You know, if, if, if you're coming at it from a place of, we both have equal passion about our mission. Um, and being in a mission-driven business, it's, it's easy because we can really reference that mission of, you know, creating female entrepreneurs and empowering women and coming at it from the place of, this is what I think is best for our mission, not this is what I want or, per- or personalizing it in a way has, has enabled me to more comfortably have conflict and also just things like breathing, you know, and um, taking the like a mini meditation before I'm about to have a tough conversation, but just getting in your body, like feeling, you know, feeling just deep breath and ready to go, go in and have that conversation. And those things have all helped. And, but I was on the very extreme end of being conflict averse. Yeah. I think it's hard. I think conflict is hard for anyone. And then if you're, if you're, it's uncomfortable. I mean, I I don't know another, another way around it. It's like constantly having to get comfortable with something that's not. Well, and, and I think like what you just said is Starting to get comfortable just sitting in the discomfort. Totally. You know what I mean? Being comfortable with an uncomfortable pregnant pause or lapse in the conversation instead of trying to fill in every gap with this tendency to want to make smooth and everything over, but just stopping and not saying anything and letting the, the uncomfortableness kind of just being in it. I actually think is the best way to then move, move through it. So, you know, it's funny. Some people, if I'm having a bad day, are like, oh, did you have a fight with your husband? I'm like, no, I had a fight with my brother. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but I would prefer, I would prefer, I'll take it. I'll take that any day, you know, not not fighting at home, just fighting at work. Totally. So you are responsible for 30,000 women's, you know, partial livelihood. 
What is advice that you give them to be successful with representing Stella and Dot and getting it into the hands of, of many more women from that? I think that's a great question because it's, you know, they're all, they're all entrepreneurs. So right. it's the same advice I would give any entrepreneur, which is don't be afraid to fail. So, you know, if you're reaching out to your social network and, you know, you're inviting them to a pop-up or you're, you know, styling an outfit for them online. Like if you get a no, just um, understand that that's part of the process and, and move on from it instead of really feeling devastated by it. But just understanding that getting told no and hitting obstacles is just part of the entrepreneur's path and to keep going. And then the other thing is just to really stay focused you know, on on the things that you do have control over. So we have a lot of leaders in in our field amongst the sellers leading large teams, and there's always going to be somebody with an issue or somebody who comes in with a negative point of view, but just really focusing on the positive and and moving forward and, you know, controlling the things you can control and, and letting the other things go are all key things that we tell people. So one of the things I love about like when I meet with women, whether it was when I learned this from you or other other entrepreneurs or different ways of doing things and also rethinking work life. I don't want to say balance because it's not it's not a real word. Right. But what I right. loved when we met the first time is you were like, nope, in the summers, I work from Sag Harbor. I come in as needed and my team, yeah. you know, you've adapted your team to do that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh, you can, you can not follow the Henry Ford model of nine to five and you can ha- you can yeah. create, you can, obviously when you're building a business, you can't do that. But when you get to a yeah. certain level, you can sort of begin to adapt the business to suit your life. And yeah. I would just love to hear a little bit about how you thought through that, how you began to set up the team to be able to get used to that. For those people who are listening, who are like, how do I change certain things about my life so I can still have, you know, moments that are maybe not work related that really matter? Yeah. So that arrangement has not been without its speed bumps. And I think what, but it's in an amazing place now. And I think the the first thing is, is hiring the right people um, who you really trust and can empower to be an on-the-ground proxy for you if you're not physically present. I'm at the point now where, you know, th- this past summer, I was the the most remote I've ever been, and I got the best feedback from my team <laughs> that I ever have because, it you know, when you have more of a founder-led culture, there's there's very little space for other people to really rise up and be empowered and have, and have a strong voice sometimes. So actually... Because as a founder, you kind of are always shouting through a megaphone just by the nature of your position, actually having the team having some space to have some preliminary meetings without me on product and and form their own opinions, have the space to form their own opinions, their points of view, and then have me come in was actually a real growth experience for the team. And I think it's, it's been about structuring a combination of a really buttoned-up process um, with clear meetings and checkpoints and then a clear understanding of who's at what meeting, and then really empowering people to make decisions without me where appropriate. Um, And I think that it's been a win-win. I actually this summer had 
the most time for concepting future seasons than I've ever had. And, you know, I worked really hard. It was just in a more creative capacity. It was a more far-looking capacity. And it's, I, I'm already seeing the impact it's going to have on the upcoming seasons, just having that space to concept further in advance. I love that you approached it that way because I, you know, you didn't, it's not like you took off and nothing grew from it. You took off, you grew more, your team grew more. So it's just proof that when you set things up correctly to do that, it can totally work. Yeah. And I I have another example of that, which I just love. It's such a win-win. I now have a VP of design who is really great at process and she actually really loves being in meetings. I don't like being in a lot of meetings. I'm more like I'd like to be in a room with like some paint and some beads and some fabric and like be making stuff half the time. So she was like, hey, I want to be in more meetings. I was like, great. I don't want to be in as many meetings. So why don't you take my place in like this set of meetings, you know, this level of meetings, and then I'll come in for you know, on a different level of meanings, but she's happier and I'm happier. And so sometimes that's like right in front of your nose and you just don't know it. And and if you assume that everybody's like you and built like you, you're never going to uncover that. But if you make room for understanding that people are motivated in different ways, there might be a win-win like that right, right under your nose. So one thing I like to ask a lot of the women I'm interviewing is something we wouldn't be able to Google about you that uh, you know, we'd be surprised to know. I mean, I used to make jewelry and sell them at the swap meet in San Diego. <laughs> that was that was uh, my Yay. my early childhood job. Do you have anything that people would be surprised to know? It could be a habit. It could be um, a ritual. Oh, that's such a good question. The first thing I would say, I'm trying to think the most surprising thing. I mean, the most surprising thing, and I've already talked about this on RM Superwoman, but is that I got run over by an 18-wheeler truck and was pronounced dead and then, like, rehabilitated myself. That is probably the most surprising thing. Then, in ter- and then You were pronounced that, dead? Yes, yes. For so how I long? Feel like <laughs> I was pronounced dead, and then the, you know, the jaws of life and the firemen, came, like the whole rescue squad game, pronounced me dead. It's crossed out on the police report, and then they gave me CPR, and then I was in a coma for a week. Um, wow. And, and then it came to. So the most surprising thing about me was that I was once pronounced dead. But then um, the other surprising thing, given that horrific accident, is that I love adventure. So I love backcountry skiing and rock climbing. And, you know, I love fashion, but I also love the outdoors and getting super dirty and camping and doing a lot of adventure stuff. I'm still stuck on dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to stop that, right? Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I feel very lucky every day. So one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast was, and you've given tons of great advice throughout this interview, but any last words of advice? Because I'm hoping that, you know, my listeners come away, change something about themselves, their life, their career path. Any last words that you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I already touched on the power of direct communication. I could not feel more strongly about that one. But the other one is, I think it's often a misconception that 
in order to be successful at all, it has to be all about self-sacrifice. Like you're miserable, you're working seven days a week, you have no life, um, you know, you've sacrificed everything. And there is some element of that being an entrepreneur, like definitely the seven days a week thing. But I also think people produce their best work when they're having fun. And I think that it's just always a good reminder to tap into, you know, whatever you're doing, just take time to stop and just, you know, laugh, laugh with your teammates and bring a little levity into your work life because I think that is the most common misconception is that everybody just needs to be living a life of total self-sacrifice to be successful. And I think that you're winning if you're having fun, you have some things of your own that you've carved out and you're super passionate and then going full throttle at work. I love that. I feel like if, if we're going to spend more time at work than we are with our family or our loved ones, it should be fun. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Blythe Harris, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. That was Blythe Harris. If you want to know more about Blythe and Stella and Dot, you can find her at Stella and Dot or Stella and Dot.com. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I really want to hear from you what you want to know more of, who you want as guests. You can email us at superwomen at rebeccaminkoff.com. That's superwomen at rebeccaminkoff.com. 